everyone. My name is Rusty Pepper, and I'm the host of the Live Marketing Podcast. My guest today is Jeff Swiston, who is an agency lead and consulting CMO. I'm excited to sit down and talk to him about the missing fundamentals of marketing, his Madison Avenue career, and of course, his new book, Why Marketing Works. So now, without further ado, let's get on with the show. All right. Well, welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, thank you, Rusty. Great being here. Appreciate you being on. So you've got a very interesting background and I'd love for everybody to kind of learn more about you and what you've been up to in your career journey. So would you mind just kind of jumping in and giving us your background on who you are, what you've been doing and why you're talking to us? Yeah, I'd love to do that. Generally, my career started in traditional management consulting with uh, Deloitte and Pricewaterhouse, which of course became PricewaterhouseCoopers. And I actually uh, worked on that merger. It was one of the uh, last projects I did uh, before moving on. Uh, Next notable career jump was to be the CMO at Interbrand, uh, the leading brand consultancy globally. And that was a fantastic uh, opportunity. Uh, You know, saw the world, uh, was the overseer of the best global brands report, as well as several several regional ones, such as uh, the best China brands and best Canadian brands. Um, So that was an awesome experience. And then my boss got elevated uh, to become um, the CEO of DDB Worldwide, you know, one of the larger uh, advertising agencies, and uh, I think the most uh, creatively awarded one, if, if they've still got that uh, mantle. And I went over there as chief communications officer. So between DDB and uh, Interbrand, I was commuting from Canada to New York <laughs> for 11 years every second week. And it was great. Great. Had a great time. Uh, but felt it was time to do something different. And seven years ago, I uh, opened up my own shop, Swiston Communications, and I would say 70 to 80% of my work has been with agencies and consultancies. They just seem to be a sweet spot for me. Uh, Though I do consumer products, I do B2B, um, I've done associations. And primarily my work is uh, large brands, uh, large brand campaigns or rebrandings, a lot of rebrandings as well. And sometimes they get right down into business development and help them set up account strategies, go-to-market strategies. So uh, I've seen a little bit of everything over this career. When you were in college, what did you think you'd be doing at this juncture of your career? So I'm originally from a, a, a town in the middle of Canada called Winnipeg, and I can't say I was the most academically inclined uh, high school student. Uh, so when graduation came around, I hadn't given much thought even to university or college. I ended up in university on a theater scholarship, believe it or not. That kind of saved me. And it was an interesting segue. Theater is actually very akin to marketing. You've got to present, you've got to convince, you've got to entertain uh, so I actually look back on those roots sometime and say, well, those were sort of well-planted roots. And midway through my undergrad, I switched to economics. So I did a full, you know, 180 out of theater to uh, economics. And that didn't resonate as well, but it gave me some grounding. I never thought I'd be in advertising and marketing. I never really thought that. I always was uh, enamored with it. I thought it was a cool profession. Um, but when I moved into traditional management consulting, I got routed into the, the marketing stream. There was operations, you know, there was finance consulting. And just given my background, I was uh, routed into marketing and, and uh, thankfully that happened. Why do you think marketing just stuck with you? Do you think it's just kind of in your DNA or, you know, happenstance or just something you just fell in love with? I, I think it is, was in my DNA, but unmined at that point. Because now, in, I don't want to call it the twilight of my career. I think I've got some years left in me. But I've really gotten, gotten into writing. Now, writing's always been a part of marketing, 
but the essence of it for me is now I'm crystallizing around the whole notion of storytelling. So I've come out with my own marketing book. I've got a, a, a time travel mystery novel coming out. I've been asked by a billionaire to write his biography. And when I look back, if there is any continuity, I think I was attracted to the whole notion of storytelling. And that is, you know, what makes up marketing, what makes up advertising, whether it be, you know, a five second video online or, you know, uh, a great written print ad still has impact, I guess always in my DNA has been the notion of being a storyteller. That is a very important part of marketing. It is, it is. It you know, brands. It, yeah, exactly. And it's a, it's a chapter in the book because I think it's key. I've seen this debate over the last few years uh, where when, when creatives in the advertising industry tell uh, others that it's not about storytelling, my next question is, well, what is it all about? I don't get it. Uh, you need to compel someone to feel part of something and we as humans naturally gravitate and react well to stories. There's the old um, proverb that tell someone something or show them something or have them write something down. But if you tell it in the form of a story, they're going to remember it way more than those other ways. That was a trick we learned studying was how do you take something that boring subject and try to make it somewhat enjoyable through a story. But trying to make science into a story to me was very difficult to me. I was always enamored by, wow, how can they make a story out of something within the, you know, dissecting a frog or whatever it would be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, what the? So, and it no, wasn't no, until later in my life that I was able to figure that out. If you look back to your, you know, your own studies, whether it be in grade school or, or college, you remember the professors that were able to frame the lessons uh, in stories. And, you know, that lent itself better to, say, history or English, but there were guys in science, and believe me, I wasn't science inclined or mathematically inclined, but if they could relate it to everyday things and through the form of storytelling, uh, those are the, those are the uh, teachers you remember. It captivates you. It makes it really memorable, and I don't think I had very many of those teachers. Uh, <laughs> so you wrote a book. Were you always know something you wanted to do, or was there something that, a spark that kind of created the opportunity to say that, you know what? We need to write a book about why marketing works. I think it was both of those things. So well surmised there. One is I always thought I had a book in me. Uh, I've been a voracious reader. I'm getting into this writing more and more. I'm like number, you know, 500 on Amazon for book reviews. Uh, you know, I'm, I just always chewed up content. And I'd been to what, 150 marketing conferences. I'd read probably upwards of 500 marketing books. And for a while there, I thought, well, nothing else can be said. You know, there's so much that's already been said. And it was actually then a catalyst uh, and a real fun one. At my local's farmer market, I'm walking through there on a Saturday with my wife. And that experience of watching these people, uh, these vendors in their little booths with, you know, umbrellas over them and stuff, selling their wares and how they were selling them really struck a chord for me. It was the catalyst. I saw, you know, the, the artisan pie maker talking to customers about why she loved doing what she does and how she makes her pies. I saw the guy selling every form of meat uh, that you could see. I saw flower arrangements where uh, the couple who were running that booth, that was their passion. They, they grew the flowers, they put them together in bouquets. And I was listening to the banter between buyer and seller. And there was some bartering going on too. There was, uh, can you give me, you know, two for, you know, three for two and all of that. So just that evidenced in about five, 10 minutes, my observations that marketing's been around forever because these markets have been around forever. They go back to Pompeii, they go back to Athens, they go, you name it, and they haven't changed much. So I thought, well, what's the consistent factors between 
marketing through the centuries. And it wasn't really, I'm going to write a book on that at that point. I just did some research and, and I found a poem from 1672 that talked about going to a farmer's market. And quite frankly, it was a playbook for marketing. It was how to set up your booth. It was how to uh, engage with people. It was how to give people a fair deal or a little extra so they came back. And I went, wow, you know, um, there has to be some th thematics to this uh, by looking at marketing's history. And, and so I did a lot more research and came up with a book. You mentioned when you were talking, you were talking about how like the people that grew the flowers and you know, they're, they're passionate about it. And that struck me because people that are very passionate about what they do are very good storytellers. Even if they're not naturally good storytellers, if they're passionate about it, they're going to talk to you in a way that you just believe because they're living it, they're breathing it. It's who they are. It's in their soul. I, I totally uh, believe that. And I, I, I live in this small town now, so I've gravitated out of the big cities. My wife and I live north of Montreal in Quebec at a ski resort area called Mont Tremblant. And there's constant examples for me here in this community, which is um, very artisan-like. And I actually see um, bigger brands, uh, you know, trying to get that artisan quality, which is that passion that you've spoken about. There is a chocolatier uh, woman here who's won international awards. Her packaging is gorgeous. Um, and of course, the chocolate is fantastic. She uh, sources the beans and, you know, does everything. If you hear her story, it's quite involved. She does trips every year to make sure she's getting the best ingredients. But it's when she starts talking about that and the, how she gets so animated and how she's so proud of this, and not because she's won awards, not because she's running a successful business, because she's doing what she lo loves and producing a product that people are loving. And I'm sure you enjoy eating it. I do, yeah. <laughs> Especially on those cold Canadian nights. <laughs> I, always, I, I love packaging. I think sometimes these artisans can do just amazing packaging, especially sometimes it's just as simple as it gets. It could just be crap paper, but the way that they do it, it's unexpected. You're like, wow, that's just really well done. Yeah, and, and, it, and it can be simple stuff. My uh, eldest stepdaughter has uh, joined us here in the small community. I was surprised. I thought, you know, all of them, we have four between us, might gravitate to the big cities and, and hang. But she came here, she's opened up a hot yoga studio, and she's doing excellent with it. And her boyfriend has a, a pizza place on the mountain in the resort. It's called Yahoo Pizza. Uh, I helped with a bit of the branding, which was tons of fun. All I get is pro bono pizza, but that's okay. That works too, so making it seem like all I do is eat chocolate and pizza. Uh, but his boxes, his takeout boxes, you don't need to have the printer run off three color artwork on the top. You get a big stamp and you stamp each box in front of the people. And there's some, you know, there's some theater to that. There's the personalization of that. Um, and once again, it's back to that, that craftiness or that artisanness. It's authentic. Totally authentic, you know, and, and that's what people want now. You know, there's all these studies coming out uh, it's funny, having gravitated to marketing, I've never been a, a, you know, a massive consumer commercial guy. I like nice things, but I don't feel compelled to run out and shop every day. Uh, I've always been about the experience. And we've seen these studies now that especially millennials, you know, they're not buying their dad a tie on Father's Day anymore. They're saying, you know, we're going to go on a fishing trip. We're going to have an experience. We're going to go for a hike and have a hot dog at the top, you know, something like that. And uh, so I'm, I'm really interested in seeing it. I'm not an expert on it, but I'm following this closely as to see how the spend changes. You know, we also know millennials aren't really buying cars, potentially can't afford homes. So they're, they're living their lives different, uh, differently. And this is going to have a, a huge impact on brands and branding. Speaking of like the impact on brands and marketing, 
What are some of those, the big impacts or trends that you're seeing right now? What I'm seeing is before brands were rebranding like every seven years, and that was great business for those of us who conducted that work. I see now that they're not making it this shock and awe thing that happens every periodically. Like all of a sudden we're coming out, the new logo tagline, we're changing all the signs on the banks across America, uh, you know, over the weekend. What they're doing, and I think it's the right thing, there's more little flourishes and touches to keep the brand relevant as it goes on. Because really there's just four aspects to a brand. Making sure you have that difference. What are your differentiators, obviously? How are you relevant? And people get differentiators and relevance mixed up, mixed up all the time, and they're two very distinct things. Uh, stretch, can your brand uh, you know, move into other areas? And overall, is this an experience? We are just talking about an experience. And an experience can be buying a pizza, even takeout. That can be an experience. What do you want people to remember? What do you want them to take away? And how do you want them to share their experience so you get more people coming back? I know Bank of America recently, I think the last year, uh, updated their branding. It was an announcement. Here's our new logo. It was basically, it was a very, just a subtle, subtle changes, but it made it more refreshed. It looked more current. It looked more relevant to what they were trying to portray, which was, like you were saying, just keeping it moving forward and not sustaining still. It's been so funny that, um, you know, Interbrand in its big heyday, you know, if we were doing a big piece of work like that, uh, you know, that would cost several million, et cetera. And then that's not even the cost of them switching over their signage and all of that. That's just the, the pure consulting and design fees. And even myself as pretty much a sole practitioner who will bring a designer or two in a project, I'm still charging a couple hundred K for a rebrand. The fact is, is that good value? When you do that sort of press release day, what happens is there's so much subjectivity to marketing and branding, and especially if the change is simply a logo refresh and a new tagline, you know, of course, shareholders, even customers are going to go, ooh, is that really worth it? So, you know, I love the nuance uh, is to it. And I also like in branding, you asked uh, before, what is what have I seen in big changes? Well, when I really started in this 20 years ago, you came out with the brand guidelines after you launched the brand. And remember, they were thick as some of those books, you know, that are like encyclopedias. They weren't really digitized back then. And no one was allowed to tamper with the brand. And I can understand Pantone colors and shapes and all that stuff. But that, that thought process actually caused, I think, uh, creative constipation in organizations because it basically said, don't touch anything. This is the way it is. And we now know that so many of the great ideas for brands actually come from, you know, the, the, the rank and file. I always say Subway sandwiches, the $5 foot long wasn't coming out of head office. That was a franchisee who acted on an employee's idea in one location in Florida. And all of a sudden it became, you know, a national campaign for them and a national pricing strategy. So if you don't give people some room to blow up the lab, so to speak, how are you ever going to innovate? And not only around your marketing and branding, about your product, your pricing, uh, your service. And, and I, I just like how uh, branding has become less autocratic. Which brands do you think do a good job allowing that creativity to flow or the innovation uh, to flow, but yet still keep the rails on the overall brand? That's, that's a great question. Um, I've been impressed, believe it or not. And I don't know if this is coming from rank and file, or if it's, it is from head office. But if you see McDonald's, uh, McDonald's and uh, DDB had McDonald's, a lot of uh, McDonald's business as a client, so I got to know it well. 
And when I came into advertising, I was a little bit naive. I'd done strategic marketing consulting. I'd done brand consulting. And when I went to the big agency, I thought, well, if you have the McDonald's account, you've got it worldwide and everything. Well, no, it's broken up. Leo Burnett has a chunk of business here, this and that and that. So I thought that was interesting. But I've watched McDonald's. Uh, so in the time that I was at DDB, even to present day, where, you know, the logo in uh, France is green. It's different. In, in Japan, it's red. And here it's the you know, yellow primary colors that we're used to in the golden arches. How about menus and restaurant designs? Those are all now customized based on local culture, uh, language, diet. You go to uh, England and they're serving porridge, right? Here in Canada, we have our famous, uh, especially in Quebec, uh, poutine. It's French fries covered in gravy and cheese curds and they, McDonald's serves it. They customize it to the local audience here. It used to be if you went into a McDonald's anywhere in the world, it was the same restaurant, right? It was just cookie cutter right out of it. You had the, the bolted chairs with the scoopy plastic seats. And a little known story is those were actually designed on a cant to almost push you out of the chair because they wanted turnover. They wanted people out of the restaurant as fast as possible. And now they've set them up where they're cozier than Starbucks, right? They're, they're plush seating expanded their coffee menu because that's what people like these days. So McDonald's does a great job of it. And I think that's because they've got the sort of local versus global thing worked out well. Now on the flip side of that, which brands do you think could do a better job? Um, I think that, you know what, some of the apparel brands to me really strike me as that, that I don't know, some of them that are doing really well have kind of an arrogance to them and that they think you're just, you fit in my construct. Uh, I'm not going to fit in yours. And I'm speaking about, there's a Canadian one, Lululemon, that's all about yoga. Uh, there's a huge arrogance out of that business. And it's reflected itself in some really big PR debacles. Um, recently, you know, the North Face uh, company uh, got into trouble because their agency um, did something on Wikipedia. They kind of took over Wikipedia. They, they found the 15 best, most remote, neatest hiking places like Patagonia and places in Scotland. And they went in there and swapped the photographs out and put in, you know, subtle North Face advertising. And, and that just betrays an arrogance too. Canada Goose, they're kind of arrogant because they're using uh, materials that some people, environmentalists, would, would say, hey, that's, that's not good for the environment, but yet you're, all, you're espousing these ideals of being good about the environment. So I've really noticed this arrogance in apparel companies, and I think it's because they're all freaked out a bit over retail and where's it going? Are they just going to end up selling through Amazon and therefore, you know, their margins will be hit. So therefore they're toughening up their stance on things. I don't know. It'll be fun to watch. I saw that uh, an article that came out uh, this week that Ralph Lauren is closing their flagship store on fifth Avenue. That's a and shame. How, I used to visit that one all the time. Yeah. It was a beautiful store. And the problem is, is they, they have not evolved. It's overpriced and, this next generation just it hasn't grabbed them like a, an H&M or some of these other brands. It's no, and, and it's too bad because I, I hope that doesn't affect the Polo Club because they make a giant hamburger there that I really enjoy. Back to food again. But I could see, I, you know, if I brought, um, you know, uh, colleagues in who are below 30, they might think that is the least hip place to be. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, and they actually did it. They actually took pictures while they were in the store of there was nobody there. It was not a great picture for what you would expect from Ralph Lauren, especially our generation. That was like the brand. That was what you aspire to be able to wear. And Yeah. You know, what's funny about Fifth Avenue and those flagship stores, they, that's really old school uh, retail brand thinking. And I could see where it had its place for, you know, better part of half a century. 
And it's funny, one of the stories in my book, I talk about Tupperware and the whole party plan marketing thing and the, the way that changes. If you go to someone's house and you're invited and they're, you're, you're given a drink and a lecture, you almost feel obligated to buy something. And that's been part of the party plan thing. But Tupperware actually started out trying to sell retail. Believe it or not, Tupperware had a flagship store on Fifth Avenue. And that lasted, I think, you know, less than two years. And then there was Earl Tupper. He didn't know how to sell it. He just invented this thing. And a woman named Brownie Weiss came in and really shook up his whole organization. She became president uh, and took it in this other distribution realm that, of course, continues to be successful with. And there's something like a Tupperware party still won every minute in the world. Like, it's incredible. I did, I, that I did not know. So yeah. fun fact of the day. There's a Tupperware party somewhere in the world happening right now. Mm-hmm. Now, good news to anybody that's in New York. Uh, soon there will be a Krispy Kreme coming to Times Square. I did see a rendering oh, of wow. that this morning. Yeah. We, we, we're almost got a, a food program going here, Rusty, rather than a marketing program. <laughs> it is the morning. I'm kind of hungry. So uh, I know we kind of pushed our time. We didn't get to some of the stuff that I was really hoping to talk about, kind of like with strategic fundamentals of marketing and some of the other things that you speak about a lot, but I want to go to reflection before we kind of wrap up. If you were to give yourself a piece of advice that would help you avoid some of the mistakes or pitfalls, what would that advice be? You know, here's one that I think is kind of solved a bit with social media. I was horrendous at, um, and this has nothing to do with marketing. This is just simply business and me being successful as a business person. And, you know, that's all about relationships. I attended conferences all over the world. I um, spoke, I was a media person, all that. I was terrible at getting the business cards, keeping people's names and numbers, staying in touch with them and building a better network uh, myself. Now, as I think as a sole practitioner, you know, that would have been far more beneficial. And I've gotten a lot better at it over the seven years, but now we have, you know, you know, the phones can tap and you can get uh, everyone's contact information. I was at a conference where my lanyard was actually a piece of technology and you attach the two uh, together and that swapped uh, the information. So that's a lot easier now, but you know, it is all about who you meet up, down, in between as your career progresses. And I just think I should have done a lot better job uh, at net- networking through the years. Was there any connection that you made that you're like, wow, that one, here's an example of what happens when you do put yourself out there and you do keep these connections where this is what can happen. Do you have any good stories on that? Well, I always relied on doing good work and that hoping good work would create buzz. And so I have a few examples of that. When I first started out on my own, I was lucky enough to land a client that I rebranded that's in the uh, loyalty space. They're called Bond Brand Loyalty Now. And they have been loyal to me in probably four more pieces of work. I was uh, I rebranded them, was uh, their CMO, uh, interim CMO for a period. Plus, they gave me four other distinct projects and then introduced me to two other potential clients that became clients that were rebrands as well. So from that, you know, one client, I got X amount of business that was just excellent. And that was using my old school thinking, if you do good work, people will recommend you, people will will want to work with you. That's got a good advice and it should hold true because success gets success. So Exactly. Yeah, that was always the hope. I appreciate you coming on. I know we've kind of pushed our time, but definitely we need to keep these conversations going. For your book, Why Marketing Works, I guess you can find that on Amazon. Absolutely. Yep. It's on Amazon. It's uh, it's doing well. And I think people will enjoy it. Just to give it a quick blurb, it's you can't have a lot of, you know, 
if you, you can have all the tech in the world, the AI, the programmatic, and all that stuff in the market world, there, you don't have the fundamentals, your brand's not going to be successful. That's what, really what the book is all about. So I hope people pick it up. Basic blocking and tackling. Absolutely. That's awesome. The, we'll make sure to put a link in there when we launch the, your episode. Uh, so, hey, Jeff, I really appreciate you coming on today. Hey, there's a lot of with everything you got going on. Yeah, now I'm, I think I'm going to go get some food because I'm hungry after all that talk. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Thank you, Dusty. It was a real pleasure. All right, Jeff. <laughs> Cheers. Bye-bye.